Okay, so um, I always sort of demarcate out giving papers from teaching by actually doing the classic anthropological thing of reading a paper. So it's kind of forgive me, but it's actually otherwise you'll get my kind of weird hyper teaching mode, which is not something appropriate, I think, for now. So um, there are a few slides, but actually they're just sort of backdrops. Um, there's no real content on them. It's just to make sure you don't look at me for the whole hour or so. Uh, and I wanted to start off just basically with a couple of quotes. I'll read them out. And they're really to set the scene, although they're not... They're not particularly uh, specific, direct, specifically directed to my argument. The first is from, some of you might know, uh, this guy called Jacob, who's a very, very famous 20th century biologist. Um, uh, some of his theories are still very much kind of central to, to notions of, of molecular and cellular uh, activity. And he writes, Biology incorporates time as one of its essential parameters. The arrow of time can indeed be found throughout the whole living world in every single organism which changes incessantly during its life. A continuous process which does not just recall the past, but also looks ahead. And the second quote is from fieldwork, uh, from a registrar in the hospital that the research will be on. Uh, and this particular doctor said, she said, doctors often say they wish they had a retrospectoscope. You know, a device that would allow them to see what things they might need to know retrospectively. Okay. And before I, I move, this, move on, it's like if you just keep reading that quote, the more it kind of, I think, either gets more tangled up or just untangles, depending on which. It just is very hard to get a conceptual grip on, and that's precisely what I'm trying to explore. <coughs> so the paper is about the role of time in knowledge practices. As anthropologists, of course, we're very well acquainted with debates, say, around the ethnographic present and the political consequences of producing and reproducing any ahistorical account. And, of course, we all know it's now very, very commonplace to talk about the construction of the past, say, how forgetting might be highly productive as a social and political kind of technology. Such debates point to how the common-sense perception of time passing belies the very active ways in which that experience of time is done. However, there seems to be far less anthropological analysis concerning how futures might be constructed or ethnographic descriptions of the ways in which these futures actively inhabit and influence the present. So I want to explore the construction of a particular kind of clinical body, not according to ideas of its materiality, which might be the standard way of thinking about it, but ideas of temporality. And this paper doesn't really do that very well, I have to say. So, as always, um, this is work in progress. It's the classic get-out clause. This temporal dimension is key not merely to describing and envisaging the human body in the hospital bed, but to ideas of vitality and of medical treatment themselves, since both draw on conceptualizations of continuity and of change. As a result, I do not focus on patients or their experiences. I won't be drawing on any of that material today, but rather the ways in which professionals and professional activities serve to construct understandings of the body according to particular temporal framings. What I want to do is I want to argue that in a UK hospital setting, there are two general temporalities, and this is a kind of, with all the kind of uh, apologies for, for a crude description. And these are contingent on two different sets of practices that are going on. Each creates a different rendering of the patient body. And yet, an apparently modest sheet of A4 paper serves to reveal the potential instability that exists within each. Since, as I hopefully go on to describe, although it's overtly aligned to one of the temporalities, it nevertheless interferes with the other. 
So I want to end by arguing that this kind of ontological interference produces patterns and effects that cannot be understood by reference to just one kind of body. And hopefully I'll kind of slowly work through what that might mean to me and then perhaps uh, get some great uh, questions from you to help me along the way. So this is a bit of paper. In fact, these are just variations of the different bits of paper. Um, I won't go into it, but basically each hospital trust at the moment produces its own variation of this do not resuscitate order. I'll describe what that is in a minute. Uh, there seems to be, there's a few guidelines flying around in the NHS, but there's no standardisation yet. And dis- but despite that, both formally and informally, there seems to be a general pattern you can see just in terms of the layout and so forth. It is literally just one sheet of A4 paper. It's an obvious thing to suggest that even in a highly advanced healthcare system, paper forms and records have as much influence on health as, say, fMRIs and automated gene sequencing machines. The purpose, then, of this talk is to highlight the extent to which we should at least also attend to such lowbrow low technologies and not allow them to go unnoticed in any ethnographic accounts of biomedicine. The piece of paper I'm focusing on is this single sheet of A4 called a DNAR or DNA-CPR, and this stands for Do Not Attempt Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation. There's actually a kind of history in why it used to be called DNR, and in American uh, medical soaps, they tend to say DNR, but it's kind of expanded for various reasons. Um, and this is completed by doctors. It serves to standardise what is frequently a very difficult decision. The form stipulates that if a patient does have a heart arrest at some point during their stay in the hospital, during that hospital stay, then resuscitation should not be attempted on them. Because the DNA CPR form is designed so that um, the event of a cardiac arrest is highly visible, it's always stuck in the front of the notes. But the suggestion I want to explore today is, by being such a prominent feature in the biomedical world, in, on the ward, whether or not it influences regular hospital practice in the present, irrespective of what actually might happen in the future. I consequently want to draw out the ways in which a decision about a future possibility becomes an active reality in the present, indirectly shaping clinical reasoning, the organisation of a ward, Uh, and the assumptions that then get made about those patients and those patient bodies that happen to have a DNA CPR in their notes. Now, in general, um, resuscitation, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, has been the subject to relatively little social science research. There's some literature in the medical uh, and nursing research that draws on what they call qualitative research, but within sociology and anthropology, CPR is almost universally tied up with research into the management of death and end-of-life processes, which is kind of what Stanley was pointing out. One important exception is the work of someone called Stefan Timmermans, who you might know, who used his own ethnographic accounts to describe how the actual practices of resuscitation contrast so directly with the almost mythical and heroic status that they have uh, in media representations. The truth is, CPR is not a pleasant thing. I've never actually witnessed it, but I'm lucky I do not want to witness it. Um, so uh, a colleague of mine, an anthropologist who helped on this project, you know, did actually once witness it and she could hear the sound of ribs breaking. It's a hugely violent act and it often doesn't work. In fact, most of the time it doesn't work to most of the people it's administered to. Okay, so it's not what you imagine it might be. However, my focus is explicitly not on CPR, but rather the significance of the mandate, whether or not CPR is actually done in the future. And as such, I'm interested in embedding this piece of paper, the DNA CPR form, within an ethnographic count of everyday ward life, rather than focus on its particular and specific role at any time of crash call.
Now, since medicine is all about action and alteration, any hospital ethnography is inescapably about the ways in which practices and temporalities forge in particular ways. Social anthropologies frequently started such kind of discussions with how time shapes those activities. For example, and we all know this, how seasonal rhythms determine what people do, leading to different cultural conceptions and experiences. Although few actually imagine a stark contrast, I would argue cultural comparisons have tended, and sometimes still tend to, imply that these different experiences of time are mutually exclusive. So it goes, cross-cultural studies have often made out a contrast between modern linear and traditional cyclical or ecological time. The former is associated with various mechanisms and technologies that mark out time as irreversible. And in so doing, they emphasise unilinear causal relationships between elements, and so are associated with things like modern rationalism and experimental science. In contrast, the latter, that cyclical or ecological notion of time, uh, it tends to be linked to different notions of temporal features in nature, such as the shifting seasons, and leading to an emphasis not on the uniqueness of events or their particular place on a timeline, but rather with ideas of recurrence, return, or continuity. However, given the experience of time is rarely, if ever, conscious or articulated, one might argue that this whole explanatory ordering reflects a pretty Western intellectualist commitment from the start. A practice orientation, in contrast, resists assumptions about any a priori world and suggests the opposite. For example, that reaping a harvest or moving cattle to areas of water enact the seasons. Temporalities and practices are thereby recursive and the personal and social experience of time are produced and reproduced through a wide range of everyday practices, performed in physical rather than psychological space. In other words, my argument is, for this paper anyway, that any sense of time's directional movement is the result of the practices by which we identify and categorise events along a particular timeline or within a particular temporality. So in this paper, my emphasis is consequently placed on how those practices create experiences of time, not by establishing cognitive representations, but rather simply through everyday actions that draw on and draw in material and cultural resources. A common demand in a hospital is that of coordination, coordination between staff and patients, between staff from different departments and with different services that are going on. There is also a need to coordinate with other elements, test results, referral notes, computer entries, drug deliveries, all these and more are essential for the hospital organisation. Thus, many practices link many different kind of components together and by doing so construct particular senses of temporality. This suggests time should not be considered as any pre-existing backdrop against which those cultural activities are done, but on the contrary, is constructed by those particular practices each of which might have its own temporal demands. As a consequence, these medical acts reproduce and reaffirm not merely how bodies are conceived, but the means by which those bodies are produced in particular ways. But beyond merely constructing an experience of time through activities and associations that take place in the hospital, medical practice is, of course, also concerned with altering its projected course. Biomedical science, demarked just as the kind of the Yakov quote of the, of the top kind of implied. Biomedical science demarcates time in particular ways in order to establish particular notions of causation, providing the ontological framework for much of medical practice within a hospital. So in relation to this, 
a central term in current medicine is intervention. I'm not sure how many of you know. It's, it's the buzzword not only in medicine but everywhere. Like, it just seems to be the word at the moment. The idea of intervening, however, suggesting that the current trajectory can and should be intercepted, adjusted or altered to produce a different kind of outcome. Whilst many tend to focus on the social and cultural nature of those interventions, and certainly my own kind of work or the work I get employed to do is much more about the content. What is the content of an intervention and how can one make it better? Their design, delivery, impact and all those kind of things. This paper instead looks at how the notion of temporality is just as significant to the same logic. Okay. Oh, we'll get on to the form, sorry about this. But anyway, um, all this introduces a crucial, if somewhat elliptical argument, and this perhaps is the argument that I kind of know I need refining, that a range of medical practices create particular sense of temporality, which in turn suggest a future according to which or by which the interventions can be conceived. So it's the same, it's perhaps just a re-rendering of the same looped argument that the registrar said when she was talking about her retrospectoscope. The following analysis of the DNA-CPR order reflects this dynamic. So my analysis of this one piece of paper is somehow trying to work through this dynamic. It is no doubt a useful strategy for the medics on the ward to make decisions about possible futures. But, as I've implied, in so doing, it's actually one of the many practices that actually defines and shapes the temporal categories themselves. Right? So you get this loop. To that end, I want to describe how the DNA-CPR form ostensibly designed only to be introduced at some stage in the future, nevertheless influences the present, and thereby interferes in a very material way with the practices and hence temporalities that are going on in the ward. Okay, so this isn't... I didn't take this photo. It's a publicity shot. You can see that it feels completely staged, but still, it's, it's kind of worryingly similar to what I saw on the film. The paper is based on ethnographic fieldwork in a medium-sized NHS hospital in England uh, by myself and another anthropology colleague called Duke Franco and we were working alongside two surprisingly sympathetic doctors. Field work consisted of um, basically occupying two acute medicine wards uh, formally for nine months although informally this extended well beyond this period and data collection comprised of field notes uh, in order to gain a general overview of the variety of activities on the wards. It also included shadowing particular members of staff during their clinical duties, attending clinical handovers, observations of patient life in their bays, uh, access to all areas of the ward during weekdays, weekends and overnight. In addition, we conducted, um, we looked at various literature that was relevant, that was existing on the ward. In we interviewed 25 doctors and nurses uh, and in fact, we were allowed to access 250 sets of patient medical notes. So quite extraordinary access. Don't give me credit for that at all. It's remember, we had two friendly doctors by our side. Those are the ones who got us the access. This ethnographic approach, of course, reflected our rationale um, to capture or try and capture some of the subtle ways in which the patient and the ill body are conceived by hospital staff and therefore the ways in which the DNA-CPR form might be or is a feature of ward practice. So the form itself is one of many documents that frequently are generated about a person during an inpatient hospital stay. And I don't know if any of you were, it's always a bit of a surprise to see just how paper-based this form of uh, information is still within the NHS. This includes a patient's medical history, the clinical investigations that are conducted, 
course, any correspondence between different health professionals gets stuck in there, evaluation of the patient's mobility, personal care requirements, their living situation, particular medication they're on, and observational records that are done on a, on a daily basis. So when we say notes, of course, one imagines write notes like that in a brown um, folder, but if there's a patient who's been uh, inpatient for a numerous times, notes consist of a number of these huge brown folders, right? We're talking just physically, substantial amount of paper. They're collated into one or more of these papers and accumulate over time to become the set of notes and themselves represent, in a very obvious visual way, a manifestation of someone's medical history. So, in fact, that's true. Anecdotally, doctors make kind of very crude moral judgments about patients just on the size of their notes. Right? I suppose that's not to criticise them, of course one would. Only com- there, but the DNACPR is only completed for those patients for whom it's decided CPR would not be in their best interest. So this form is not universal. It's not for all inpatients. It's a judgment call, and we'll go on to that in a minute. Um, and that's kind of crucial, because all the other notes more or less are consistent uh, with all patients. Despite initially appearing as relatively similar, then, to this plethora of other documentation, it is not a record or an instruction of action, but it's a conditional statement. It's an if-then statement within it of inaction. By being a mandate, instructing an intervention is not performed... And by having it to be completed in the present about a future possibility, I'm trying to show that it encapsulates far more of clinical ambiguity than the usual apparently definitive record of tests and procedures. It's quite weird the more one thinks about it. Although guidance encourages doctors to at least consider whether or not the form should be completed in consultation with patients and their relatives, such discussions are, in practice, uncomfortably rare. So this was the first kind of surprise I had anyway as a kind of outsider. It's absolutely not legally necessary for doctors to consult with patients or their relatives about completing a DNA CPR form because currently within this country anyway it's argued that the doctor is uh, guided by the notion of what's in their patient's best interest and this is based on clinical information and therefore it's a clinical judgment. It's seen as good practice to consult with the particular patient and the relative, but it's absolutely not legally necessary. And there are many, many cases when it's actually very difficult to do so. Theoretically, the decision is also based on the patient's whole extended history, gleaned partially from those medical notes, potentially also from the patients and relatives. So some of the guidance is actually to use the discussions not about the decision per se, but about building up a more complete understanding of where the patients come from, what illnesses the patient has, how many times has that patient, for example, been an inpatient with the same kind of condition. And all this is somehow meant to sort of go into the mix to completing the form. But of course, it doesn't really happen like that. On the small free text section of the form itself, there's one sheet of paper that's somehow meant to summarise all that stuff. There's just a very small text box where it talks about any notion of clinical history. But it's usually not... Um, included at all. Um, Entries are not included at all. Because the reality is, on busy ward rounds, the pace of decision-making generally is just so fast. Emphasis tends to be placed on the current diagnosis and assessment of the current diagnosis, such as one particular entry. Um, So here we have one who got... um, Oh, that's not missed. You just see this bottom one says end-stage COPD, which is chronic obstructive uh, pulmonary disorder. Um, This one above multiple futilities and we came across the word futilities a lot, a lot it's not a clinical word right? Um, but it it fills the box I suppose one could say 
In some cases, um, okay, yeah, so uh, in some cases it appeared as if the senior doctor did no more than observe the patient's condition from the end of the bed before completing the piece of form and deciding on the clinical action. And in fact, when we commented, or when I commented to uh, them about doctors about this, they said, oh yeah, that's standard, that's called the endobedogram. And we use the endobedogram an awful lot, we have no choice. So the endobedogram. This ostensible nonchalance, however, um, could to some extent be defended, um, uh, or sorry, was defended by some, uh, the idea that it's the greater clinical experience of senior doctors, that somehow that endobedogram or that rapid appraisal uh, might appear intuitive, but it comes from experience, right? It's a kind of classic apprenticeship argument. Uh, and doc- certain doctors are able to make that assessment and decide whether or not that DNA CPR form should be completed. I remember, when the form's completed, just to remind you, what happens is if that patient at some time in the future, while they're an inpatient on state this time round, has a cardiac arrest, then instead of calling the crash team, the nurses will just um, let the patient die. Okay. However, the apparent swift and superficial assessment belies potentially a more considered, even if it's not articulated or transparent, evaluation. These moments should not necessarily be just interpreted as meaning the doctor didn't think carefully at all, or perhaps didn't think clinically. Rather, they suggest that the decision does not solely happen at the time the form is completed. The point is that the act of completing a form constitutes maybe just a culmination of much more extended, even if harder to find and and harder um, harder to spot, evaluations. So it's a material manifestation that emerges from these much more uh, informal evaluations and interactions that maybe happen over time prior to that moment. The completion of the text box consequently functions as a kind of post hoc uh, validation, an unofficial code for others, rather than a record of what actually is deliberated. And that certainly is the case. So when we showed these kind of forms and just gently asked doctors what they thought about the kind of entries, they kind of were aware that actually these entries are just the entries you have to do to fill in the form. They're not meant to represent the way in which the medics actually were thinking. All right? So there's a kind of index story going on. So it doesn't really matter here. But here we have um, one, uh, another example. You can, the first box is, was this discussed with the patient or their relatives? No. Uh, and then it just says, you know, the patient's comfortable, uh, but they have no apparent awareness um, or acuity of their current illness. Family not present. Okay, So that is kind of all the information you got for this particular patient. The form is filled in, um, and you know, that's kind of what goes on. So it is perhaps for this reason that, certainly to me as an outsider, the text itself feels such an adequate, inadequate resource. But once filled out, a DNA CPR is inserted, as I said, into the notes. And those notes, whether they're one folder or more, whether they're thin or hugely thick, run from the most recent at the front to the earliest at the back. Um, and that's standard comp- uh, procedure in most hospitals, as far as I'm aware. And that's so the most kind of uh, pressing or the most kind of relevant are there. Uh, you, so you have to go backwards in history. However, the DNA CPR um, is inserted, as I said, right at the front on the inside cover. And in fact, on this hospital, on one of the wards, it was actually put on the front of the notes not even inside the folder, right? It's kind of worryingly public, perhaps. Um, okay. The DNA CPR is invariably printed, as that very first slide showed, uh, right across uh, the UK, with a red margin to some extent or other. It's always got red on it, to further ensure that it cannot be missed. Okay, so the whole point is, um, 
pragmatically, if there is an arrest, you go to the notes, you will know instantly whether there's a DNA CPR uh, that's been inserted or there before you even have to intervene. Okay. The colour red, unavoidably, I'd say, have a ra- whole range of secondary connotations that don't need spelled out. But in addition, in order for it not to be li- missed, um, the sheet is highly conspicuous, not merely because it's design and status, but the manner in which it interrupts the usual systems of coordination and time. So the very fact that it is so made to be so visible, whether it's right in the inside of the notes, the fact that it's red, um, the question is to what extent does that actually interfere and interrupt just everyday practice? And whilst they clearly function to establish continuity, as all notes do, um, start, so that staff can make, adopt a joint decision, uh, an essentially uncertain nature of directive disrupts any conviction that time proceeds along a pre-existing course. So the idea is that as soon as that note is inserted, right, the, the future itself is, of course, going to be influenced. Right? From experiences on the ward and through analysis of the data, it's possible to identify, general, two different senses of time associated with different activities on the ward. Hostile systems create and reproduce and attempt to stabilise those different forms of temporality through the practices that they do. Okay. The first idea of temporality, or the kind of sense of temp- time, is one of repetition, repeat, cycle, and ultimately boredom. Things just feel slow and all too familiar, as routines structure days and often weeks for the staff and patients alike. These everyday experiences of time on the ward are often about things staying the same or just repeating themselves. Time has the quality of gradual movement or flow, of systems of the body, interactions around the bedside, just humdrum activities on the ward. Okay, so just doing so. Um, just, I'm sure most of you have been, of course, either as an inpatient or visiting patient. Imagine doing field work for nine months. It's really boring. Whatever you say, it's really boring doing that kind of field work. And that's kind of the point. Patients occupy themselves in various ways, reading magazines, doing puzzles, sleeping in their chairs or beds, watching TVs attached to their uh, sleeping areas, chatting with fellow, bed, uh, fellow inpatients, or just wandering around, or some staring out of the window. Equally, nurses mill about, they drink coffee, they might chat to patients or other members of staff. But these are all non-sequential activities. They tend to be interspersed every now and then by the standard things, ward rounds, drug rotors, blood tests, trips to x-ray, getting washed, volunteers wheeling around a trolley that sells newspapers and sweets, toilet trips, bedpans, assistants on a commode, ringing the call bell, or sometimes just hollering out for help, being turned in the bed, visits from chaplaincy and visits from friends and relatives. But overall, the sick body on the ward is characterised by a powerful sense of monotony and those institutional routines that actually do not interrupt but actually help to produce a sense of uneventful continuity. The routines work in conjunction with the body rather than actually serving to control it. From meals to treats, periods of washing to the toilet trips, they all constitute a stable pattern of practices that intimately associate the body with other things and other people on the ward. And whilst largely governed by the capacities of the sick body, practices do not emanate from them in a causal manner. Rather, the body serves as a pinch point influencing which activities are done when. All right. So it's not because the body is like this, these kind of routines happen. There's this much more kind of entangled dynamic relationship between the two. But it's pretty stable. It certainly feels pretty stable in the hospital um, where we did the study. 
But in contrast, of course, there's another experience of temporality, and this is achieved through marking out and projecting events along a line, so rather than the former, suggesting or hoping to suggest notions of change, alteration, progress, and hopefully cure. Such a linear conceptualization of time that runs throughout biology, as we heard in the beginning, uh, um, happens within medicine through very kind of specific and well-known kind of vocabularies. So just to mention a few, you talk about illness trajectories, patient careers, the course of a disease, treatment pathways, etc., etc., all evoking the sense of unilinear direction. But in a hospital, the experience of this temporal direction is not just given, it has to be achieved. An enormous amount of clinical work rests on using technologies or practices or things around to, in a sense, marshal time and activities onto the body, from diagnosis to prognosis, hospital admission to hospital discharge. So one obvious example um, are charts, graphs and tables. These, this is part of an observation chart that has to be filled in for each patient, and it's done in this one you can't really see, depending on the patient, at various times while they're an inpatient, throughout the day, um, sometimes throughout the night as well, each day, day upon day, constructing, for want of a better word, the notion of time passing. The status of the body in the present is assessed by recourse to practices that bring forth what it might be of light previously and that might predict what it might be like in the future. Clearly, medical interventions are aligned with this sense of temporality, since they are designed to alter, interrupt, or engage with conceptualizations of causal relationships. Inevitably constructed from fixed points, however, clinical objects in this instance are not really conceived of as being in motion. Instead, through differentiation and measurement, they are described in terms of causal relations between elements that tend to be fixed, whether they're parts of the body, levels of pharmaceutical molecules, particular measurements, or physiological states. The point is that this, this whole range of clinical actions mobilises a certain kind of temporalities that brings in um, decisions about drugs, about tests, about treatment modifications. And these don't simply mark out time, but create a certain kind of time for that particular body by intervening and determining change, tempo, and all the expectations that come with lines on a particular chart. Aligned with this temporality is the constant pressure that staff feel in undertaking their work. They're constantly feeling that they're having to be busy, that time has to be fit, that there's not enough time for them to do this, that and the other, and in particular not enough time for them to actually stop and talk to the patients. So it couldn't be more of a contrast than the other mundane notion of time that's happening coterminously, the notion of lingering that typifies that form of temporality I tried to describe. These both exist on the ward differently. So on on the ward, consequently, it's possible to claim, I don't know whether you're going to go along with this argument, there are two general temporalities that are occurring contiguously and yet quite often apparently discreetly. Whilst there's unsurprising potential dissonance between them, the linear time, you won't be surprised to hear, has a much stronger normative influence. However, although the practices of linear temporality dominate those that produce a more circular and fluid time, this is never complete. The circular time associated with that everyday care of the body on the ward, after all, is necessary in order to enable those other practices that articulate the linear time. And thus the two are inevitably entangled. Beyond this, again, you won't be surprised here, linear time is more associated with those practices that are coupled with medical expertise, with notions of abstract knowledge over messy bodies, 
with cure rather than care, with doctors rather than nurses. It's in this context that the patient notes can be seen not merely to log what has happened, but like a range of other strategies, stabilise inevitable tensions that tend to be created by these two different imperatives in the hospital, that of cyclical change and the construction of linearity. Sometimes DNA CPR orders are issued in accordance with patient wishes about their treatment. However, as I said, the majority are completed by doctors based on a clinical decision. For example, if a patient is considered simply too frail to survive the procedure or if it wouldn't be in their best interests because they anyway are end stage of a particular terminal illness or, for example, might be left with significant decreased quality of life. As one doctor recalled to me, I've been to some arrests or have had patients of mine with arrests who've not had a DNA CPR where you think, God, this should never have started. The point is that despite the prevalence of media representations in which death is heroically evaded, those forceful chest compressions delivered by a crash team are far less successful than one might assume. Estimates range, no one's really, there seems to be very, very hard to get a definitive figure, but between 10 and 20%. Of these, a high proportion are actually likely to suffer further physical or cognitive impairment as a consequence of the procedure itself. One junior doctor recalled having a patient who was resuscitated but died very soon afterwards. And when the patient's original consultant came along, he said that he wouldn't have attempted, to, wouldn't have attempted DNA CPR anyway, and why was it done? The junior doctor was very annoyed and said, well, there wasn't a DNA CPR form in the notes, and, that the dif- 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 uh, and therefore they had no choice but to actually attempt a resuscitation. Despite that kind of somewhat graphic kind of worry, um, DNA CPRs do not mean, of course, that a patient is about to die. The forms are used by hospital staff to prevent what they deem inappropriate intervention, even though in important ways it's actually antithetical to their normal practice, which is to do anything to save a life or to prevent harm. One such scenario is described by one doctor in which they came to a crash call um, and then only afterwards was the notes read. And as the notes were gently read while the crash call was going on, Uh, it was found that actually this patient should not have been down for resuscitation. There should have been a DNA CPR in their notes. As the doctor said, it just wasn't in the chap's best interests. So they actually stopped resuscitation attempts quite soon, um, rather than trying an overextended period of time. The doctor afterwards described the whole event had been awful. And it transpired that the team looking after this patient hadn't done a DNA CPR form because actually that patient was scheduled to be going home the next day anyway. So someone just kind of decided it wasn't relevant. Now, although DNA CPR decisions can change, um, they're always recorded by a senior doctor. And a change has to be done by striking through the piece of paper itself. The material nature of the form serves to fix a clinical decision. The messy, unpredictable bodies that cultivate any temporality of flow or cycle uh, and unpredictability contrast with this neat, controlled documentation and its attempt at providing an unambiguous directive. The timing, however, of a DNA CPR decision-making seemed to be quite ad hoc. As the previous story said, you know, why wasn't a DNA CPR order filled out when the patient arrived? Why was there any ambiguity about it just prior to them leaving? 
actually some of this is illustrated by the fact that quite a lot of the time the DNA CPR forms were filled in not by the regular doctors at all, but on-call doctors, which is a huge thing in NHS. I don't want to worry you, but it's, it is a huge thing. Don't get ill on a Friday. On-call doctors, which doctors are over weekends and antisocial. Just look at the data. I'm not joking. Um, or when a patient is actually described as being going off. So actually, when a patient, only when a patient is described as being going off, <coughs> becoming frail, is there any kind of mobilisation to complete the form. Okay. Now, although the form could, uh, can only officially be filled out by a senior doctor, this tended to be prompted by junior doctors or nurses. Well, that's what we saw, who were inquiring constantly. If they were worried about a particular patient or they were making their own judgments about a patient, they'd kind of nudge the senior doctor whenever they were doing their ward rounds and say, look, this patient is... It's it would be appropriate for DNA CPR to be completed for them. So it's not surprising that nurses, frequently, frequently the ones who would be the first on the scene if someone actually has a cardiac arrest, were somewhat obsessed with knowing who actually had a DNA CPR order, even though officially they were not really meant to be part of the decision-making process. There's a box where they should sign, which is to sign that, they've actually know, that they know there's a presence of the, of the piece of paper. But that box is not meant to represent them being actively involved in the decision. So the nurses spent much of the time with patients on the ward, gaining a general exper expertise and overall kind of evaluation of that particular individual patient. And they felt that this was a kind of form of knowledge, a resource that should be drawn on for the DNA CPR decision. However, they don't actually get to, to make the decision. Okay. Now, a further means of initiating completion was the practice of noting it on a yellow slip of paper. So in addition to the actual red banded form, um, there was a sticker system. This top one is a sticker system. Um, and as you can see, it goes right on the front of the, piece of, uh, of the folder or of the hospital notes that are on the end of the bed, uh, bright yellow. And there you've got a, with a few details, not many details about who this patient is, but clearly it's very important to know if there's DNA CPR. There are various forms of iteration. Once the DNA CPR piece of paper gets filled out, it kind of proliferates into these little, little markers, little, little subtle ways in which it gets re-substantiated and even more kind of fixed, attached to the patient. Okay. However, neither, none of these are a fail-safe fail -safe system. And in fact, what does happen is even if these forms are filled in, and even if the yellow stickers happen to be uh, ticked one side or another, um, sometimes att resuscitation attempts are done on patients who perhaps should not have had them because the form was originally filled out. Now, patients who had DNA CPR forms tended to fall in one of two categories, and this again is very crude uh, generalisation. The one, one we're calling the unresponsive and the other the unduly disruptive. The unresponsive group tended to consist of those patients in these two wards who were visibly unwell. To, that means to a non-clinical, I suppose, person. They were lying in bed, tend to be slumped, or uh, slumped in their bed or on orthopaedic chairs or something, and showed little, if any, activity. And through that, hence, virtually no engagement with staff or other patients. In other words, no engagement with the kind of practices I've been talking about. By not participating in the ward practices, but rather being only passive to them, they were very static in many senses of the word. An unresponsive nature of the patient and their body made it actually very difficult for staff to find ways of actually engaging with who these patients were. Following up these, the theme, rather than assume that the DNA CPR completion for these patients was a result of an ab just of an abstract judgment of the quality of their life, it was actually the very lack of participation that seems to have led uh, staff to struggle with imagining the future of these particular patients. 
In other words, the only temporality that was enacted through such patients and their bodies was that one of flow and routine, and that the future that tends to be derived from other kinds of practices that would extend that patient in the imagination through association with notions of what might happen in the future simply wasn't achieved for them. In contrast, the disruptive group tended to be made up of those patients who lived with advanced dementia, and there are lots of those patients in these two wards, and I guess a lot of those patients increasingly on lots of wards in lots of hospitals. They might be constantly vocal, or they might be wandering around, and unwittingly uh, detaching themselves from equipment, and moving themselves around from one bed to another, uh, but generally uh, not according with the organisations on the ward. Their patients require a higher level of nursing and healthcare attention. For example, they're in a side room next to the nursing station. There was once an elderly woman with dementia who was on the ward for what seemed like an unusually extended period of time, a number of months. She started out in a bed in one of the bays, but because she was so disturbing to the other patients and to the rhythms and organisations on the ward, because uh, she constantly punctuated them with these sustained loud wailings and shoutings, she was moved from one bay to another and eventually kind of almost round the corner. Hearing things, of course, as, a, as an anthropologist, is very distressing, but it was also compounded by what appeared to be a lack of concern on the part of the clinicians. Now, I'm not claiming that I was observing anything in this hospital that was similar to, of course, the controversies going on at the moment, but it's just kind of interesting the way the systems itself get set up. However, what, what everyone knew was... Um, oh, I'll miss this bit, actually. Yeah. So, anyway, the staff carried on as if she wasn't calling out. They're kind of ignoring her to some extent, anyway. Now, once again, I'm not suggesting that DNA CPR orders were completed for her and other people who were disruptive in any punitive way or even in any improper way. That's not the level of the argument. Rather, it's that the behaviour of such patients makes imagining their clinical futures almost impossible since they don't work collaboratively by engaging in those practices that serve to foster a clear notion of the future. It's a common observation to suggest that on occasions hospital decisions about care, therefore, are made not about these actual patients or their physical bodies, but rather about their test results and their medical records. DNA CPR forms are even more, I would argue, detached from the person than many of these other forms of documentations. And they lurk in the end of the bed, as we've heard, uh, in the current admission folder that might be extended on the rack, or in those large bundles of notes that are so big they sometimes have to be wheeled round in the trolley. So this is a notes trolley here. It's therefore sometimes the form itself which doctors and nurses look at, talk about and act upon, rather than the patients themselves. So in an obvious kind of objectification kind of way, although I don't think that's the right word, once the piece of paper has been filled out, it's the piece of paper that's discussed and engaged with. And the patients, certainly these disruptive patients or um, these quiet patients who are kind of disengaged, are kind of not, don't have to be engaged with anymore. One striking example was whenever a handover took place. For example, a handover between nursing uh, staff. It was the same for doctors. Those who are about to relieve would informally talk about, um, they'd give a verbal update of each patient uh, to the incoming staff who would be annotating, uh, they'd have, sometimes have their own system or copies of a spreadsheet that had been printed out on the ward. And whenever relevant, DNA CPR status was always given. It was given immediately after mentioning the patient's name and their age, but before any other personal or medical information. All right. And perhaps it's wrong to overinterpret that, but it was kind of striking that the DNA supply was just so high up in the list of the information that needed to be handed over. 
In such circumstances, nurses might even describe a patient just as not for resus, or not for the core, or DNR. The primacy of this DNA CPR status was made obvious and was communicated before mentioning anything to do of the clinical plan of how a patient, the next nurse should actually be operating on the ward. And corresponding, the nurses receiving the handover would use a highlighter pen, we've watched that numerous times, to mark out sometimes an unequivocal X by the name of someone on their printout. Such markings of DNA CPR status were actually evident, as I sort of implied, proliferated in other areas of ward life. So on one ward, but not another ward, they actually had introduced, while we were there, an electronic medical record system. And it was used by doctors to give, you know, just basic information about patients. Um, we blacked out, I'm afraid, all, virtually all the information, because it just wouldn't be allowed. But what you can see here is the little circles, DNA CPR. Okay, that's what they stand for. So they're red circles with an R in them. And similarly, on another ward, what we saw was, this is again kind of informal culture of a ward that's set up by, um, they don't have to be standardised, even within a relatively small hospital, their own kind of systems. Um, we saw on a bed chart, so this is a chart just behind all the nurses and the doctors where you tend to go in uh, during visiting hours. These are all the beds. Uh, each one of these is a bed. There's kind of little kind of symbols here, uh, kind of hieroglyphs. Uh, about the status of each patient as you go bed by bed. Um, but what we saw was there was also a symbol. Uh, you can see some of them. There's a big black dot, all right, and it's not there. And so, of course, when we asked what the black dot meant, it meant that those patients were down for DNA CPR. Whenever a patient has been discharged and then goes home, the front of the DNA CPR form, as I mentioned, is crossed through, and it has to be marked cancelled or patient discharged and then it has to be dainted by a senior doctor. However, it's hospital policy, and I think it's probably hospital policy across all hospitals, that you can't simply throw away documentation, that all documentation has to stay in the patient notes and build up permanently. So if ever a patient is readmitted, and there might be a consideration about whether they should have a DNA CPR completed this time round, the doctor has to make an appropriate decision. But of course... There is a legacy, and here we have a legacy of DNA CPR forms for this particular patient, and have actually uncomfortably acknowledged to us that if there were ever anyone that had been cancelled from previous inpatient uh, in admissions, they were like, more likely to readily consider the need of whether or not this patient needed to have a DNA CPR this time round. So the accumulation of the forms in the notes is a, therefore a further manifestation of time, characterised both in terms of continuity and repetition. Okay, so the last few minutes, just want to kind of pull some of this together and try and work out what I'm trying to talk about. All the staff that I spoke to in the study felt that the form is necessary. And in fact, although I was, have to say, I started the research completely horrified that, for example, um, that patients are not always consulted with and not involved in the discussions. By the end, I certainly acknowledged the need to have such forms because I, I didn't realise how horrific and inappropriate uh, CPR might be. Many of the staff, however, said that they felt it must influence the care that's given. Few could think how, however, and no one could ever recall an instance in which it actually occurred. So that's kind of what I'm trying to work through. Nurses thought it must affect 
patients because it must change how junior doctors give care. Junior doctors said to us that they thought it affected the nursing care. And consultants, well, consultants just would give more mixed and talked about nurses and junior doctors, never themselves. So you have this kind of weird world where everyone says, well, having that in the notes must affect everyday care because it's so alarming, right? It's so visible. It's such a marker of a particular kind of patient and the kind of moral categorisation that goes behind of it. And yet no one could actually put their finger on it, I suppose, to use a, a silly phrase. This position is replicated in quite a few medical studies and sometimes, occasionally, in the media. The argument that somehow the presence of the form is likely to have an impact on other kinds of clinical decision-making. However, what's most intriguing is the difficulty, if not impossibility, any of these studies have had in being able to identify specific ways in which that presence of the form might actually influence everyday care. It seems as if it does, did have, does have an effect in the present. The form operates in subtle and multiple ways, and these simply cannot be assessed by measuring crude variables. The invisibility of direct causal effect between the form and other measurable outputs and the linear consequences actually is mirrored in the own field work that we conducted. Despite initially being committed to try and find those subtle uh, differences that must come about if the form happens to be in a particular patient's note, uh, notes and not in someone else's notes, in truth, there seemed to be very little that was apparent to the anthropological eye. So the point is that on the ward, its influence may actually always escape observation, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Nor should it mean, in the end, that there's any disconnect, um, because cultural meanings are likely to thrive underground, appearing here and there on the surface of things every now and then. My argument is therefore not that the form simply indelibly marks a patient in a crude sense, but it alters the way in which a temporal course is constructed by influencing a wide range of daily practices. Since, many of the, since it is many of these that produce that notion of temporality, patients with DNA CPRs become associated only or largely with one, with the cyclical time, of things staying the same, of things repeating. And what's interesting, therefore, is not the ways in which the form might unequivocally alter decisions a doctor or nurse might make, but rather, via the meanings inscribed within and onto the form, the pervasive agency that the form itself comes to have, and how this interacts in everyday ways with the staff on the hospital ward. It's precisely its entangled quality in terms of individuals and chronologies that enables such an apparently straightforward, mundane object amongst all the high-tech devices and complex machineries uh, that are now uh, in a hospital to actively shape and interact with healthcare professionals and the practices that they do. The overwhelming majority, as I've said, of the staff stated that whilst it didn't actually affect the care they gave, it must have an effect. And this is not to reject the possibility of finding any instruments or measurements of DNA-CPR effects, but that those will only ever be established retrospectively. Like the retrospectoscope, specific clinical measures are only identifiable by having to not attend to others. And these rapidly suggest a linearity that folds up elements such that one thing can be associated with another thing across points in time. What they cannot capture, however, are the more nebulous and uncertain features of the heterogeneous unfolding continuities of bodies and their relationships in the social and physical environment of a ward. So the apparent paradox that the form is believed to have an insidious influence, yet cannot be measured to do so, suggests the presence of the form 
and its influence extends much further than might be first expected, interweaving notions of clinical agency and imagination, since it in incorporates into a patient's medical records treatment expectations and decisions relating to other entries in the sets of notes. Medical practice produces particular kinds of bodies. In this paper, I have very roughly tried to work out or illustrate one dimension to this, how temporal practices produce particular kinds of temporal bodies. The day-to-day -day sense of monotony and waiting incorporates the ill body, determining a slow pace and a sense of duration. Practices of care tend to affirm that body and may work that may well be in flux and changing, but nevertheless, it's not ever on a trajectory. It's more one of flow and regularity. But this contrasts with those other medical practices that have to produce clinical bodies, clinical bodies that enable a different kind of imagination. And in this instance, the body is as much defined by what it might do or what it might be as what it might be, might, might be in the present. Medical knowledge and the deliberative rationality of interventions produce a sense of time as a succession of events through measurements, tests, examinations, that all serving not merely to take snapshots of the course of time, but actually construct that sense of time itself. So from this description, it's clear that the form and its variations, its manifestations, proliferations, these little ways, not only reflect an imagined future, but amplifies that linear succession of temporality. Writing a future possibility down, trying to fix it, uh, and, not only, and broadcasting it to other clinicians and staff restricts the nature of the future present and imposes a particular kind of temporal imagining. In this context, sorry, in the context that both of these are produced and experienced through practices, the, the particular piece of paper can have a disrupting effect. Unlike the many other components that are bundled together with the patient's notes, it folds a particular clinical decision of what might need to be done as a crisis arises into the present but superimposing it onto the patient in the bed, eclipsing any complementarity of time experienced as care or flow. And rather than derive from bodily experience in which the sixth body might actively contribute to these ideas of continuity, DNA CPRs represent an imposition or a punctuation of what I would call clinical time. Thus, the separation of the resuscitation decision from other clinical assessments is not solely what is at stake. What is key is that by doing so, different orders of consequence are set up. From this perspective, it's not apposite to ask what precise effects the DNCPR does or doesn't actually create. Completing a form about a future possible event and then simply inserting it into the notes creates the difference. But such difference is not defined by a clear before or after effect. It's not a difference that's producing linear causation. Trying to find discrete causal elements actually might miss something that we all intuitively know, that the more distributed ways of something influencing can escape measurement. Instead, the form therefore interferes, and it interferes with those practices associated with fluid time that are never made clinically visible, that shape and mould the body through new connections and new relationships. Thank you.